Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. I'd like to do this song for her, and we'd like to do it for every underpaid and underappreciated teacher in this world. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. My name is Mike Fisher. I'm the Commonwealth Club membership director, and we are so glad to have all of you here tonight. The Commonwealth Club is a member-supported nonprofit organization. We attract the world's most notable luminaries, artists, and thought leaders. Tonight's program is co-produced by the Commonwealth Club's In Forum, a division to connect your intellect. We would love to meet you after the program. You can come chat with club staff and learn more about the Commonwealth Club and In Forum, and our incredible lineup of events. Thanks to our media partner K Fox for making tonight such a success, and congratulations to Amy Clark for winning our video contest. Amy's video of her covering Nash's song "Be Yourself" scored the most likes on Facebook. Congratulations, Amy Clark. Deep. And now, please take out your phones. Make sure that you are switched to silent, and we encourage you to tweet throughout the program at CW Club with hashtag Graham Nash SF. Thanks again for being here. We'll be back in just a few minutes with Graham Nash.
Santo. Do do do. Hello, you got some gravy in your ear. Wavy gravy, hippie icon, flower geezer, and temple of accumulated error. Also clown, activist, and buddies of our star for this evening, the leader of the Lords of One Throat. He is an environmental activist who has been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice. And the Songwriters Hall of Fame twice. He is an author and an amazing human being, a fine specimen of a lad. Graham Nash, bring him out here. Yay! Do I give you this? Welcome, Graham. How is everybody? You got wavy gravy to get off his ass and come and introduce me? That's fantastic. I'm Greg Dalton from the Commonwealth Club of California. Our guest today is legendary singer-songwriter Graham Nash. As a member of the 1960s pop group The Hollies, Graham Nash was part of the British invasion that transformed American music. As a young musician in England, he played and partied with the Beatles, Rolling Stones, and many other rising stars. In 1968, he left the Hollies to join David Crosby and Stephen Stills in Crosby, Stills, and Nash. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of the Hollies and Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Graham Nash is the author of a new memoir, Wild Tales, A Rock and Roll Life. Over the next hour, we'll talk with him about his life, music, and political activism. Along the way, we will include live questions from our audience in San Francisco. Please welcome Graham Nash to the Commonwealth Club. Good evening. Graham, welcome. Thank you very much, and thank you all for coming and you know, sharing a little of your very precious time with us tonight. You often end your concert with one of your um, famous songs, Teach Your Children. And now that you're a grandfather, we thought we would mix it up tonight and begin with a gift for you. Oh. Oh, look at this. I can't wait to see what's going to go on here. Oh, guitars too. Hmm.
Well done. Well done. The San Francisco Community Music Center Children's Chorus. Well done, everybody. That was really beautiful. Thank you. How fabulous. The San Francisco Community Music Center Children's Chorus. Hey, sounded better than Crosby and Stills there for a second. <laughs> you got room for them on your next tour? No, yes. I'd like to begin with a story uh, about you and school. One day you skipped school to go buy tickets for Bill Haley. Tell us that story. Uh, it was just before my 15th birthday. Obviously, uh, Bill Haley's Rock Around the Clock was part of the soundtrack of a movie called uh, Blackboard Jungle that had just been shown in Manchester and was uh, driving all the kids crazy. Um, so we loved the song Rock Around the Clock. And then one day we heard from the local newspaper that Bill Haley and the Comets were actually coming to Manchester. And uh, as Greg says, I, I, me and my friend Alan Clark, we were, you know, we were young kids, uh, just getting into music, just f- feeling our way through the universe. Um, and we knew that we would have to go see the show, right? So, we, you know, I was the one that was chosen to stay off school and get tickets, right? So I'm standing in, in the queue waiting to get tickets, and I noticed that uh, one of my teachers, uh, <laughs> Mr. Lewis, whose name I will never forget, uh, passed by uh, the queue in his car going somewhere. Anyway, the next day I go to school and I get called to the headmaster's office. And, you know, that's never a good thing. It's never a good thing to be called to the headmaster's office. Um, And I had to admit to the fact that I I was not sick, as I told them I was, that I was, in fact, um, buying tickets to the Bill Haley concert. But it it absolutely changed my life. Not only uh, did the music uh, thrill me to death, but also I learned something about school. And I'd learned something about passion. And I learned something about not being dissuaded from your passion. I learned a lot in that day. That was a very important day in my life. It was part of that lesson, the punishment you received for, for skipping school. Well, yeah, because you ha- they have to make an example of you. You can't have every kid, you know, taking time off school and buying concert tickets for a rock and roll show. So I, I was slippered. Uh, it, it wasn't pleasant. It, 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 it was upsetting. You know, I, I didn't think that I'd done much wrong, you know, just taking a morning off school to buy tickets for a, a concert. It, I hadn't killed anybody. I hadn't, you know, it, it wasn't that bad to me, but I guess it was to them. And ever since that day, I, I've, uh, I, I decided that school was actually not for me, that I could learn, um, I could learn much more in, in life than I could in school. I, probably naive and probably foolish, but that's what I felt then. Yet you still wrote a wonderful song called Teach Your Children Well, which is you know, pays tribute to teachers. So you weren't a fan of school, but you have a love for teachers. I'm, I, I'm not a great fan of school, but I love facts and I love education. And yes, I wrote Teach Your Children. Um, we have a lot to learn from our kids. We have a lot to teach them, but we do have a lot to learn from our children. Uh, and to hear... The song that I wrote, my goodness, 
1969, sang by these wonderful children. That was that was a thrill, and it was my honour to be into be introduced by my my hero, Wavy Gravy. Thank you, thank you for tomorrow for bringing me. We should do a benefit here, Wavy. This is a beautiful hall here. Plant thinking about it. Uh, shortly after that Bill Haley uh, concert, you left school and you started your music career with Alan Clark, who you've been friends with from six years old. Tell us about that musical relationship in those days. I'm not sure why Alan Clark and I can sing so well together. I don't know. It wasn't anything that we were taught. It wasn't anything that we, we had lessons or, or a teacher or anything. It was, it was completely natural to us. I, I met him when I was six years old. Uh, we started to sing, you know, uh, in the assembly before classes, we would sing the Lord's Prayer, and we ended up singing in this beautiful harmony. I have no idea how or why. Uh, but I knew from a very early age in my life what I wanted to do. I wanted always to make music. And I wanted, uh, I wanted to create music that made me feel like those early rock and roll records did, like the Bill Haley record, like the Everly Brothers, you know. Uh, I, I'm a great lover of harmony, and I, I've been doing this all my life. And... I guess, you know, if I'd have been a plumber for 50 years, I'd be a great plumber, too, you know. And you, had, you and Alan Clark had a chance to meet the Everly Brothers. You staked outside a hotel. What was it like to meet them, your heroes? It changed my life. The Everly Brothers, on April 22, 1960, came to play in Manchester. And me and Clark, me and Alan Clark uh, uh, would sing their songs, and we, 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 you know, we were two. In 1960, I was 18. Uh, we were two kids that, that just played around with acoustic guitars and loved the Everly Brothers and stuff. And when they came to Manchester, obviously, we were going to go and see the show. But more than that, Alan and I decided that we would meet them. And that entailed a couple of things. Uh, where they were playing in Manchester was only about a hundred yards from the best hotel in Manchester, so we kind of figured that that's where they were staying, and that was kind of um, driven home to us when the fact that there was no tour bus, so it wasn't like they were doing a show in Manchester and then getting on the bus and driving to the next city. So we knew that they were in town, so we waited, me and Alan, on the steps of the Midland Hotel uh, until about 1:30 in the morning, and they came around the corner. Uh, I think they were a little drunk. They'd been to a nightclub after their show. Uh, Alan Clark and I obviously missed the last bus home. We had a long way to walk home in, in, in the cold North of England weather at, uh, you know, at you know, 2 o'clock in the morning. But it changed my life in, in this way. In many ways, I think that we're all trying to touch the flame. Anybody that we admire, any music that we like, any sculptor that we like, any painter, any musician, you know, all that stuff. Um, you know, we want to touch, we want to get as close to the flame as possible. And the feeling that I'm trying to explain to, uh, to Greg uh, when we met the Everly Brothers was there was only me and Alan Clark and Don and Phil Everly on the steps of the Midland Hotel at two in the morning, right? And instead of, like, just patting us on the head and signing an autograph, right, they stood and talked to me and Alan Clark for what seemed to be about, you know, a couple of weeks. Uh, <laughs> it may have only been, you know, ten minutes, but they taught me something very interesting in that I think when you meet your heroes, if you can look them in the eye and, and know that you have a, even a microsecond of of contact, that's, that's enough. 
You know, we do want to touch the flame, but we don't want to get burned, you know. Uh, so the Everly Brothers were incredibly important in my life. If we want to, you know, continue with these crazy Everly Brothers stories, when we, we told them that night that we wanted to be in the business, that, that we did acoustic songs like they did, and one day we would love to make records and stuff, la, 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 same old stuff that, you know, that would, you know. Um, but six years later, the Hollies were playing a show at the London Palladium, and it was, it, it was a big deal. It was kind of like the Ed Sullivan show of, of you know, here in America. Um, and after sound check, the phone rang backstage. And our road manager, Rod Shields, picked up the phone and uh, looked at me and he said, yeah, he's right here, and hands me the phone. And I, of course, want to know who it is before I say hello. I mean, you know. He said, it's Phil Everly. I, I said, you know, that, that's not nice. Come on. <laughs> I mean, why do that to me? He said, it's Phil Everly. So he hands me the phone and I say hello and it's Phil Everly on the phone and, and he's in town with his brother Don and they want to make uh, a record uh, in England and, and did the Hollies have any songs that they hadn't recorded? And we had a lot of songs we hadn't recorded. So we go over to their hotel and they, uh, they choose six or seven of them. Uh, we start recording with them the very next day and we had a couple of session men in, the, in their uh, John Paul Jones uh, on bass, of course, and, and uh, Elton John, who was Reggie Dwight on piano, and, and Jimmy Page on guitar. There was a lot of interesting uh, musicians. Um, and then what, one more story. I'm in Toledo, Ohio in 1992, and we're playing at this... Uh, we, we normally get to a, a city the day before so we can acclimatize before we do the concert. My phone rings in the hotel which is unusual. And I pick it up and it's Phil Everly. And I, you know, apart from saying hello, I say, why are you calling me in Toledo, Ohio? He said, well, you're playing this certain place tomorrow, but we're playing there tonight. Do you want to come to the show? So, of course, I want to go to the show. I'm a Stone fan to this day, still am. Um, so I get on the bus and we go down to the show. They do a little sound check where you go on the stage and you figure if your electric guitar is all plugged in and everything sounds good. Um, and we're eating a dinner after the sound check and Don looks at me and he goes, so um, what are you going to sing with us? I'm dying inside. It's been a life's dream, right? That's how I learned to sing top, the top harmony, right? So I'm, you know, I'm trying to be cool and I say, okay, um, I love So Sad. That's a beautiful song. Why don't we sing So Sad? It's pretty simple. You know, we all know that, right? So we, we rehearsed for about 30 seconds. <laughs> and um, Phil says to me, okay, I'll go underneath Don. You take my part. And I said, why? And he said, because I have the top part. You can't possibly sing above mine. You know. I said, Phil, I'm Graham Nash. Did you forget who you called? You stay exactly where you are. I will sing on top of both of you. Now, you've got to understand, I wanted to really, I really wanted to pay them back, you know, for what they had given me, what their music had done for me in my life. So I wanted to be good. And I have a cassette of me singing So Sad uh, three-part with the Everly Brothers. 
that just two weeks ago when I spoke to Phil, he gave me permission to use it on the E in the electronic version of, of, of the autobiography. Uh, and so you'll be able to get to hear me, uh, you know, singing three-part with the Everly Brothers, which was a, a dream to me, that's for sure. Fabulous. Um... So not long after you met the Everly Brothers on the steps of that hotel, uh, there was a very rich music scene in Manchester. Uh, you saw the Beatles play. Tell us about uh, seeing the Beatles, and then actually you were with them uh, before they went into Abbey Road to make their first album. There was a Canadian promoter in England called Carol Levis. And what he would do is... He, like, if he was working in San Francisco, he'd get local talent and bring them up and they'd do their bit, right? And then at the end of the show, he would come up and he'd put his hand above everyone's head and if the audience applauded loudest for some act, then they won, right? This is November the 19th in 1959. Me and Alan Clark, who in 59 were, what, 17 years old? We, uh, we were part of that, and obviously later we, we started the Hollies. There was a guy called Freddie Garrity on the same show who was Freddie and the Dreamers. There was a man called Ron Wycherley who was kind of an, uh, an English Elvis kind of uh, knockoff, you know, uh, called Billy Fury. And these four kids from Liverpool called Johnny and the Moondogs, who later, of course, became the Beatles. But that was an interesting show. I... I I wish I had a cassette of that night, I'll tell you. <laughs> but yet, um, you know, Liverpool is not that far from Manchester. It's only 30, 40 miles. So there were a lot of incredible bands in the north of England, you know, both in Liverpool and in Manchester. Um, but once the Beatles had uh, started to make records, they opened up a door. It used to be almost that there was like a, a racial line just north of Birmingham in England. Whereas if you were not born north of that line, you were peasants. And if you spoke the Queen's English or the King's English, then you were gentrified, right? But when the Beatles started to, to become popular, everybody in the south of England wanted to talk with a Liverpool accent because they, they wanted to be hip and cool, just like the Beatles, right? So anyway, the, my point is that the Beatles opened this incredible door and a lot of groups ran through it. There was a place that we used to play at together called The Cavern in Liverpool. And they used to, um, they had a very interesting uh, business uh, thing that they got going. Instead of um, all the local girls who worked in the local factories and worked in the local offices, instead of going to the pub or to the fish and chip shop for dinner, they, at The Cavern, they could go and, and see a, a noon t uh, rock and roll show for an hour and eat something, you know, a sandwich or something. So they had these, uh, these shows on between 12 and 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And the Hollies were playing one one day. And this, this guy comes up to us after the show and he said, My name is uh, Ron Richards and I'm a, a producer from uh, Abbey Road in, in London. And uh, I think you're very cool. This is, this, you know, obviously we're up here because if, if, if they can't only be the Beatles up in the north of England. There's got to be other bands that are interesting. So that's how we first started to make records. So we started the Hollies in December of 1962, and we were recording by April of 1963, and we haven't looked back since. And you helped John Lennon the night before they went in to record their first album. 
with Anna. Yeah, um, the Hollies were playing at the Oasis. Uh, the Beatles were playing in town. After the shows, we got together at a, at, a, at a pub that sold drink after hours, kind of illegal, but that's what it was. And they were going down to Abbey Road the next day to record their, their, their album. And John was upset because he didn't know the words to a particular song that he wanted to record the next day. Uh, and I knew them, so I, I, I wrote the words out for John, and they recorded a song called Anna the very next day. Interesting. You write that the Hollies became very successful, but you started to drift away from the Hollies, and part of the reason was, was LSD. Tell us how that, that happened. Obviously, you've never taken acid. <laughs> Don't be so sure. <laughs> well, I'm telling you, anybody that did would not have asked me what that was like. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm, I'm not condoning anyone taking drugs, but it was good for me. Uh, I've, I've taken a lot of drugs in my life, obviously. You know, most of our life is, is well documented in the musical press. Uh, but taking LSD taught me something immediately. And it was a very profound piece of knowledge. And that was that I was a piece of lint on a ball of mud spinning around in an incredibly huge, ever-expanding universe. And in, in those days, acid taught me that everything was completely meaningless. That everything that we have done, it's, it's all meaningless. I mean, if every single one of us dropped dead right now, the world would still go on spinning. The sun would come up tomorrow and everything would, you know, keep spinning and eventually another life form would come out and, you know, I don't know what it would look like, but maybe it wouldn't look like us. My point is that if everything is meaningless, then everything has to be completely meaningful. If this is life as we know it, to me, if I'm okay and my wife is okay and my children are okay and my friends are okay, the rest is a joke. The rest is a joke to be played the best way that you can. You have very little control over a lot of your life. So the way that I deal with my life is that I find the, the most positive, the funnest way through all of it. It's a joke, this. I mean, you know, I wrote Military Madness about my father going off to World War II. Have we learned nothing in the last 50 years? When Stephen Hawking was asked how long he thought that the human race might last, you know what he said? A thousand years, maybe. I'm 71 years old. I've been around for a certain percentage of that thousand years. And I know how fast my life is going. And I know that everybody here that's over 50 is trying to tell kids, you know, to take care of every second because, you know, the day after tomorrow you'll be 80. You know, it's very hard to tell children this. But I'm telling you, life goes incredibly fast. So we must fill it with the best things we can because we have a choice. We can either fill it with the best things we can or we can fill it with the shittiest things we can. Your choice, right? If you're just joining us, our guest today at the Commonwealth Club is singer-songwriter Graham Nash from Crosby, Stills & Nash and author of a new memoir, Wild Tales, A Rock and Roll Life. 
I'm Greg Dalton. So when you left the Hollies, you came to America, uh, and you opened your book talking about a cab ride up to a, a bungalow in, in Laurel Hills where you're, you're about to see your girlfriend, and you have a musical experience. So tell us about that. I had met Joni Mitchell several months before in Ottawa when the Hollies were playing in Ottawa. And uh, needless to say, I fell completely in love with this woman. Not only was she incredibly beautiful, and still is, of course, but she's a genius. Joni Mitchell is one of our greatest musicians, no doubt about it. So we had a good time in Ottawa. And she'd invited me to come and see her, you know, when I had some time off. So I flew from London to Los Angeles to, to be with Joni for a while. And there were a couple of people at dinner at her house. And it, uh, it was Stephen and David. And I, after smoking a big one and having a nice, uh, a nice dinner, uh, David says to Stephen, Hey, play Willie that song that, you, that we've been working on. You see... The Will, Willie's your nickname that they call you. Yes, I hope so, yes. <laughs> uh, the birds had broken up. David had been thrown out of the birds. And um, the Buffalo Springfield had, had broken up. And so David and Stephen were trying to figure out something to do, you know, because they had this incredible musical energy. And so David says, Play Willie that song we were just working on. And so they sang a song of Stephen's called You Don't Have to Cry, which is on the first CSN record. It's a beautiful song. And I told Stephen that, that it was a, a wonderful song, wasn't it? Would they sing it again? And they sang it again. Uh, and I, I, you know, they came to the end of it. And I said, okay, do me a favor. Bear with me here. Just bear with me. Just do it one more time. Now, remember before we were talking about 50 years, if I'd have been a plumber, how good I would be? I was good at what I'm good at singing harmony because I've, I've been doing it a long time in my life. I had in the first two performances of that song studied not only the lyrics and not only the melody, but their body language, how they were standing, how they were breathing. Because as a harmony singer, you have to become, you know, who you're singing harmony with if, if you want it right to me. Right? That's the way I think about it. Um, so whatever, whatever sound Crosby, Stills & Nash has vocally was born in less than a minute. We didn't have to work for months. We didn't have to rehearse for a year. It happened immediately. So much so that about a minute into the song, we had to stop and start laughing. I mean, it was silly. I mean, the, 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 the birds and the Springfield and the Hollies were good harmony bands, you know. Um, but this was completely different. We had never heard anything like the sound of our three voices together. We, you know, you, nobody has any claim on any of the notes that anybody sings, of course. But you can't sing like me and David and Stephen when we're on our game. And it was inc incredibly great for me. Well, we are going to, to hear some of that sound, and we're going to play Our House. But first, I'd like you to tell us the story of how, uh, what prompted you to write Our House. Well, it's interesting to know that we're, uh, we're already at 1969. We have a long way to go. Um, <laughs> I was having breakfast with uh, Joan at a delicatessen in, uh, in the valley in Los Angeles, Arts Deli. We'd finished breakfast, uh, we were walking back to her car, and we passed an antique store. 
And we're looking in the window, obviously, and we're most curious. And Joni saw this, this vase that she wanted. And uh, she bought it. And we went back to her house in Laurel Canyon, where we lived. Uh, went through the front door. Uh, it was kind of a miserable morning, as some Los Angeles mornings can be. A little drizzly, a little rainy, a little chilly. And, and we, I opened the front door and I said, I'll tell you what, why don't I light a fire and why don't you put some flowers in that vase that you just bought today? <laughs> I'm a musician. What do you think I'm going to do with that? You know, it's like... So Joni went out to buy, to put some flowers. You know, she went to the garden to put some flowers and, and I was at the piano. And I'm a musician, it's, you know... I, I don't like a vacuum. I don't like nothing happening. So, because she wasn't at the piano, I sat down at the piano, and, and our house was written probably in about an hour. Just an ordinary moment, but I think we've all been there. You know, you know. I, I'll I'll do something while you get the, the the dinner going on. You know, we've all been at these ordinary moments, and I I personally love ordinary moments. I I actually cherish them more than than some of the more in, insane moments of my life. I. I Ordinary moments. That's where the secret is. Well, let's hear a beautiful song written from an ordinary moment. I'll light the fire. You place the flowers in the vase that you bought today. Staring at the fire for hours and hours while I Listen to you play your love songs all night long for me. Nice fade. Our House, written by Graham Nash. Uh, you write that Neil Young and Stephen Stills are like two stags on stage. So talk to us. How about the, the entry of Neil Young, who you describe as a, as a weird cat, into the band? On that first Crosby, Stills & Nash record, Stephen played most of the instruments. Obviously, David and I played rhythm guitar on, on Long Time Gone, Lady of the Island, and, you know, those other songs. But Stephen played most of the instruments. He played lead guitar, obviously. He played bass. He played piano. He played B3. So when we had finished the record and we realized that we're going to have to go out on the road and play live, how exactly do we do that, right? When Stephen played most of the shit, right? So... I think at some point Stephen and Dallas Taylor, who was our drummer, went to England and asked people like uh, Stevie Winwood and, 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 and Jimi Hendrix, actually, strangely enough, uh, to join our band, right? You know, to... <laughs> um, but we needed somebody else. Now, Ahmet Erdogan, who was the uh, CEO and owner of Atlantic Records, and a, a true, true music man, uh, at dinner one night with Stephen and David suggested that they get Neil. And Stephen was kind of, you know, 
upset at that because he'd just been through 20 months with Neil uh, of insanity, of Neil not turning up, of not doing TV shows, of, you know, being difficult, you know, and, and, you know. And me, I had never met Neil Young, right? I knew who he was. I knew he was a great writer. I'd heard Expecting to Fly. I, I thought it was a brilliant piece of, of, of record-making and songwriting, but I'd never met Neil. So I said, look, <laughs> with all due respect, before we make this momentous decision to bring somebody else into what we consider to be a, you know, a, a, a beautiful object of, of three-part harmony in this first record, well, I, I've got to meet this kid, right? So I go to breakfast in New York City in the village with Neil. And uh, after that breakfast, you know, he, he was in the band. He was self-assured. He was very funny. Uh, he knew exactly what he wanted. Uh, and I asked him at one point, I said, so, so why am I talking to you about joining this band? And he said, you ever heard me and Stills play guitar, man? <laughs> I said, well, not live. He said, well... That's why you need me in this band, man. Because what Stephen and Neil had perfected in the Buffalo Springfield was these two uh, lead guitar players in the same band. And one of them would play something and the other would go, okay, motherfucker, let me show you. Okay, you're doing that well, okay, well, listen to this, man. And they had this, this intense, not rivalry, but a musical uh, form of expression between themselves, which is why I, I call them, you know, they very often, I've stood in the middle many, many times uh, and seen these two, as, as Greg says, stags on either side of the stage, you know, conversing with their guitars. It's quite something. You went to Neil Young's uh, uh, ranch south of San Francisco and uh, you had a musical experience. Tell us about that. You went out into a lake and... Neil, um, I'm at at his house one day, and he says, Hey, Willie, you want to hear my new record? I say, yeah, of course I want to hear a new Neil Young record. Why? He says, come on. I said, great. I'm expecting to go to the studio with big speakers and stuff. So Neil says, so um, get in the rowboat. (laughs) And I go, what do you mean, get in the rowboat? He said, come on, I'm going to row out into the middle of the lake. He has a beautiful lake on his property. Hey, you know, when Neil Young says something, you've got to react somewhat. Well, you know. So anyway, I get in the rowboat and we roll out, roll out into the middle of the lake. He has his entire house as the left speaker. <laughs> and his entire barn as the right speaker. And he played me Harvest full blast in the Redwoods, and it was an amazing experience. After the last note had faded away, Elliot Mazer, who was Neil's producer at the time and produced the album Harvest, came down to the edge of the lake and he shouted to Neil, he goes, How was that, Neil? And Neil Young shouted back, More barn! I'd like to hear but from this, a... But this, this sounds like a fucking fantasy. This, this, this sounds insane, doesn't it? I've never been one to look backwards because I don't care what happened two years ago. It's, let's get on with life, right? 
But in, in having to, to, you know, document my life from the very beginning, I got to the, the end of the manuscript that I'd prepared, and I looked down, and I swear to God, I said, oh, my, I wish I was him. <laughs> because it sounded insane, which was my point of 40 seconds ago. You know, me telling you that story about Neil rowing me out into the middle of a lake? I mean, come on. You couldn't even make this up, right? <laughs> Well, another wild tale is a sailing trip that you and David Crosby took from Florida to San Francisco. <clears throat> I get a call one, <clears throat> one morning from Crosby who says, Hey, Willie, you want to go sailing? <laughs> okay, why not? You know, it's a beautiful Sunday morning. I think we're going to smoke a big one. We're going to go out on the ocean. We're going to, you know... Watch a great sunset, smoke another one, have a beautiful dinner, you know, have a great time, smoke another one, go to bed. What's wrong with this picture, right? No, 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 no. Nine weeks. <laughs> Fort Lauderdale to San Francisco. Yeah, my life has been crazy. But I trusted David, you know, I, I, you know. I trusted him with my life because we were in many situations out there on the ocean that, that we could have lost our lives easily. And he got lost himself. You write about his troubles and you and Jackson Brown trying to save him. Eventually, he did turn around. David Crosby only turned around when he wanted to turn around. No amount of us intervening with him no amount of talking to him, no amount of taking more drugs than he did, no amount of not taking any drugs with him, nothing would deflect Crosby from his, you know, incredible spiral down into, into cocaine madness. Only when David Crosby walked barefoot into the FBI offices in Miami did I know that David had chosen life over death. That was the only time that I really knew. Because he made that choice. He wasn't forced into making that choice. He realized that his life was turning to complete shit and that he needed to do something about it. And he ended up going to jail, as you know. And, and uh, I was there when I got him out of jail uh, with my friend Bill Siddons, who was our manager. Uh, I was actually playing in Houston that night with, with, uh, you know, on a solo tour and got Crosby out of jail into a restaurant with the biggest steak that he could possibly, you know, think about eating, because uh, he'd been in jail in solitary confinement in Texas for a year. Think about that. Think about that. Solitary confinement for a year? Wow. Yeah, that straightened Crosby's life right out. And he's, as a matter of fact, even though it's very sad that he went to jail, it's possibly the reason that he's alive today. I saw you in concert recently, and it's evident on stage that you two have a very special bond and rapport today on stage. You talk about you've bonded with two people musically in your life, Alan Clark and David Crosby. It's true. But <laughs> me and Crosby are like Laurel and Hardy. It's, you know, and I'm the thin one, by the way. <laughs> I, I don't know what it is with me and Crosby. I, I don't want to know. Why would I possibly want to know what that was? It just happens, and I'm glad, and it happens to this day, and I'm glad, and it will happen tomorrow if I'm still alive. I mean, the, the truth is that 
you know, we could drop dead in the middle of this conversation. We don't know what's going to happen in the next millisecond. You know, so that's one of the reasons why I keep coming back to the fact that we need to utilize our time the best way we can. Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, as rich as they are, can't buy a fucking second. Not one. So, time is our only currency. Time and our family and our friends, and that's it. The rest, as I said before, to me, it's a joke. And I'm loving playing this game. I'm having a fabulous time doing it. And it's a really fun joke. You spoke earlier about the, the Everly Brothers being heroes of yours. Who are some other heroes of yours? I've heard you mention Cesar Chavez, but are there others? Who are your heroes? Well, I like people that get off their ass and do something. I like people like Wavy Gravy. I like people that, you know, with his uh, Saver Foundation, has, you know, saved the eyesight of, of over 100,000 children throughout Three the world. Million. Three million. Thank you. Three million, really? And just one short story about Wavy. He called me in 1968. And he said, you know, I'm in Chicago and these hippies have been disrupting the Democratic National Convention. And would Crosby, Stills and Nash and Young come to Chicago just to sing, to raise money for their defense fund? I could go, David could go, Stephen and Neil couldn't go. They wanted to go but couldn't because they had prior commitments. So my song, Chicago, was actually started by this man here. Thank you, Wavy. But there are, there are many, many heroes. Rosa Parks, uh, Jacques Cousteau, uh, you know, people like uh, Clarence Jones, who is here, who was uh, Martin Luther King's personal lawyer. I, I have a, a lot of Nelson Mandela, Desmond Tutu. Uh, I have I, I like kick-ass people that stand up for what they believe in and do something about it. We have another one of your songs, Immigration Man. Can you tell us how you came to write Immigration Man. I had been in Canada doing a show. Um, at that point in, in my life, I was uh, existing on what was called an H-1 visa from the United Kingdom. I was not... Uh, an American citizen at this point. This was the early 70s. And uh, coming back across the border, they let David through, they let Stephen through, they let Neil through, and they wouldn't let me through. I don't know why. Maybe something was wrong with my visa. I don't care, but it infuriated me. I didn't see why this, you know, spindly little guy with glasses all of a sudden had power over me. But he did. And he was, he was exercising that power. And it didn't make me feel good at all. I lived in San Francisco at the time on Buena Vista West here in the Haight um, and came back to, uh, to my living room and pounded out uh, Immigration Man on the piano. I, I think if there's anything to learn from any of this conversation is don't piss me off. <laughs> Let's hear Immigration Man by Graham Nash. The immigration scene Shining and feeling clean Could it be a sin? I got stopped By the immigration man He said he doesn't know if he can Let me in Let me in 
Ancient man, can I cross the line and pray? I can stay another day, let me in. Immigration man, I won't tow your line today. I can't see it anyway. Immigration Moran by Graham Nash. Actually, uh, recorded three blocks from here. Fabulous. Yeah, Wally Hyders, 1970. We spent a lot of time in the Bay Area. We love this area. This is a kick-ass place to live. Another British rocker, John Lennon, had troubles with his immigration status. Did that ever, uh, being British, ever cause you to think about being careful, being politically active in America when John Lennon had famously had troubles? Nah. Didn't seem to tame you. No, don't care. (laughs) Don't care. A lot of people say, you know, talk to the FBI, get, you know, the FIOS, you know, the Freedom of Information Act, you know, find out if they've got files on you. Why the fuck do I want to know whether they've got files on me? What the hell can I do about it? Seriously, what can you do? There's no privacy anymore. Nobody's got any privacy here. We all know that. We all know what's been going on in the last 10 years with the NSA. We know it's going to get worse in the future. So, I, you know, the way I feel about it, I'm not doing anybody any harm. Anyone can know anything they want about me. I don't give a shit. You wrote a song about Bradley Manning. What is the song and why did you write that song about Bradley Manning? Because it was unfair. Constitutionally, here in America, we're entitled to a speedy trial. A speedy trial in norm, normal you know, legal lingo is about 100 to 120 days while all the lawyers get their stuff together for the, for the trial, right? That's what you're entitled to. Bradley Manning, U.S. soldier, whistleblower, gave all the military and diplomatic cables to WikiLeaks, right? Kept in a 12-foot by 8-foot white cell with bright lights 24 hours a day, often asked to stand naked, being woken up every five minutes at night to see if he's okay, for a thousand days before his trial. It wasn't fair to me. I don't particularly care whether he's innocent or guilty of what he was charged with. That's not fair to keep somebody in such incredible conditions that the United Nations likened it to torture. This is America. We need people like Bradley Manning to tell us what's going on in our name. Another area of your activism has been focused early with Jackson Brown on on nuclear power. And I think the nuclear power plant where you protested 20 years ago is now going to close in California. Many environmentalists have changed their tune on nuclear power, Stuart Brand and others, saying with climate change, maybe we should consider nuclear. Have you changed your views at all on nuclear power? Not a fucking shot. I don't understand why in California there isn't solar panels on every single roof. We have sunshine, what, 300 days a year? And it's all wasted while the oil companies can, can, can rob you, can treat you like sheep, 
can make sure that you shut up and buy another pair of sneakers and another soft drink while they rob you? That's what's going on here. This is bread and circuses all over again. You know, it was supposedly invented by the Romans, but I'm sure it was going on for a thousand years before then, where you're supposed to give the populace something to eat and have them something to look at so that you can completely control them. That's what's going on here. That's what's going on right now. The corporations have taken over this entire planet. That's what's going on. And you live in Hawaii. Have you seen the impacts of climate change? Think about it. When I lived in San Francisco, I used to see billboards. They were kind of funny, but they weren't. And it said, shower with a friend. We're running out of water. I decided 40 years ago that if I was going to get married and have children, that I wanted water to never be a problem in my life. And I found a place in Hawaii where our average rainfall is over 460 inches a year. The record? 690. 690 inches of rain. I have seen in the last uh, 30-odd years that I've been there an incredible decrease in the rain. Now, I'm on an island that's 2,500 miles in the middle of, of the North Pacific, right? I'm on the most westerly coast of the most westerly island in this entire country. And I'm seeing it happen. We just spent weeks and weeks in Europe. And I deliberately asked everybody that was working there, all the people that help us with speakers and moving guitars and amps and all that stuff. I said, tell me about the weather, what's going on. And to a man and to a woman, they had no idea what was going on with their weather. They had never seen it like that. They had never seen it so cold. They had never seen it so hot. They had never seen it so rainy. It's happening. Global warming is a reality. All these fucking Koch brothers that are paying scientists to tell you that it's not happening, they're doing you an incredible disservice. Most of the scientists on the entire planet know that something is going on and that we are probably, uh, you know, contributing to it. Um... By the way, I'm not always this depressed. <laughs> I, I was talking at the show last night. I seem to vacillate between being completely enamored and, and, and in love and, and, and thankful to be alive to being this man that thinks that we can't possibly fix this. I, I, you know, But I have to look at life through the eyes of my children and, and my beautiful granddaughter. Um, I have to keep positive because the opposite is just awful. You know, I, I used to be an incredible watcher of, of Keith Oberman and Rachel Maddow and, and John Stewart and Stephen Colbert and, you know, and NPR News and all the great places to get news. But I was completely depressed all the time. And my, my wife Susan said, you know, do, you know, try something. I said, what? She said, don't watch. So I took two months and I didn't watch. And I came back and I plugged right in. And they were talking about the same shit. <laughs> same stuff. Bombs in Iraq, bombs in Afghanistan, you know, bombs in the mosque. The Muslims are coming to kill us. It's all, you know, it's bread and circuses, man. We are much more interested in the size of Kim Kardashian's ass than we are about Afghanistan. We are much more interested in Justin Bieber's monkey. 
It's so sad. Isn't it sad? Our guest today at the Commonwealth Club is Graham Nash, singer-songwriter from the Hollies and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. He's author of a new memoir, Wild Tales, A Rock and Roll Life. I'm Greg Dalton. We are going to go to audience questions and invite you to join us with a very brief uh, question or uh, for Graham Nash. The line is going to be right here, and um, you can start to form right there, and we'll have about 14 minutes for, uh, for questions for Graham Nash. Maybe nobody has a question. <laughs> Uh-oh. Sometimes it takes a minute for the um... step right up. You know what? We, we I need to speak into the, into the microphone. Thank you. It's right there. And if you can go through the back, that would help. Rather than cross this cr- camera up front, that would really. Uh... Okay, I love got... to see women crawling around. This is fantastic. <laughs> okay. Let's yes, go. Sir. Let's go to audience questions for Graham Nash. Graham, you made a comment late in your book that you said you're doing so many interesting things, you feel like an air traffic controller trying to juggle everything. I appreciate that because I've been one for 35 years. Mm. I'm I'm sure you love Ronald Reagan. Yeah, we're buds. Yeah, I'm sure you are buds. If you want to come down to San Francisco Control Tower on Monday, we'll uh, plug in and you can talk to some airplanes. Uh, You know what? Crosby would be much more interested in that. Is, no, no. You see, Dave, David's a pilot. You know, he has a, he has a small plane. For, you know, so David would be me. I don't I don't know how they those do. How do they do that? There's 600 people on an aluminum tube flying at 600 mile an hour, and you're having a drink. Okay. How does that work? I don't want to know how any of that works. I agree. I just know that it does. But thank you for your offer. But did you have a question? Now that I'm getting towards the end of my career, wow. uh, my wife Sally, my friends Mike and Jill were here. We played music in, the, in our 20s. Never got professional, but now, after the careers are aside, we've been playing for the last year and a half. We got a little five-piece band going. We played at a couple parties. We played at a couple open mic nights. We got a song set of 30 whole songs. And we have a long line behind you. I know. <laughs> Any words of wisdom? No words of wisdom, but if I had any advice for you, you just have to follow your heart. You know what's good. You know what's bad. Go the good way. Just wanted to hear you say it. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. And congratulations. Yes, sir. Hi, Graham. Hi. Uh, My wife and I saw you at the Bridge Bridge School show on Sunday, and you guys were just terrific. Um, I'm, I'm loving your new book. It's well-written. It's a great story. But I wanted to ask you, are you familiar with the, the book Hotel California by uh, Barney Houskins? Of course. Because it is about the true life adventures of Crosby, Stills, Nash, Young, et cetera, et cetera. Amazing how other people know how we are. <laughs> so you were talking about the relationship between Stephen Stills and, uh, and Neil Young. And you, you've, you remember his take on it. He really called it contentious and... Uh, that, that uh, you know, there was, there was, that uh, um, Stills was an egomaniac and often fueled by cocaine. But he really calls it, you know, like kind of hostile and contentious. It's, you were talking about it earlier, not, not quite that uh, negatively. And I'm just wondering what, what your take is on, on his depiction of that relationship. Our life has been crazy. I never had brothers, so I don't know what that brother thing is. So David and Stephen and Neil are my brothers, really. And we argue a lot. We were arguing at the bridge school. That was two weeks ago. (laughs) 
It wasn't a bad argument. It was just about, you know, what song to start with. You know, I wanted to do a certain song. Neil wanted to do a certain song. You know, and we, you know, we, we, we thrashed it out. But, yeah, I mean, sure, life is not like this perfect piece of cherry pie. It's just, it's full of flies and it's got maggots in there sometimes. And, you know, and you just have, you know... What can I say about what it is that we have done? You know, a lot of people ask me, you know, would you have made better music or more music had you been straight? How do you answer that question? It's, <laughs> there's no, how can you go back in time and not, uh, anyway, well, what you was for, your question? Thank, well, that was <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm just saying that in Neil's book, he doesn't describe the relationship at all like that. It's really more in How interesting. Terms. So I was just wondering, where, where was the truth? Thank you. Well, the, the truth is, that with all due respect to Neil's book, you know, it, it, it was kind of infuriating when he talks more about Peggy's dogs than he does about me and David. Thank you very much. Hi, Graham. Hey. Uh, you've also been a, a photographer and a photography collector, and you've been involved in the photography printing business. I just wondered if you'd like to talk a little bit about that experience as well. I've been a photographer longer than I've been a musician. In my book, Eye to Eye, the first portrait of my mother is a portrait I took of her when I was 10. My father's uh, main joy, we were a very poor family in the north of England, but his main joy was to take pictures. Uh, he bought a camera from a friend of his at work. And he would uh, take pictures of me and my sister at the local zoo. And then he would uh, utilize one of, one, one, you know, we had four rooms in our house, very small rooms. So he would take one of the rooms and put my blanket up against the window to block out the light. And he showed me the magic of photography. And I, I've never forgotten that magic moment of seeing an image just appear out of nowhere. You know, he, he gave a, a blank piece of paper and he said, see, nothing on it, right? And he put it into this liquid and waited and waited and waited. And 40 seconds later, this giraffe comes floating out into the universe that I know I saw my father take a picture of. You know, it's like, I love that magic, right? Um, Joni um, had a, a very good experience at a gallery in Tokyo called the Paco Gallery, with her paintings. And she said to me, uh, you should show your photographs. And I, I hadn't shown anybody anything. It, my photography was purely for me. I didn't care if any, nobody saw it. It was just for me. But she kind of put pressure on it. And so she said, you know, send half a dozen pictures to this guy and see what he thinks. So I sent this guy in Tokyo half a dozen of my shots. And he wrote back, he said, I'd love to do, I'd love to do a show. Fuck, now I'm committed, right? So, he wanted an addition of 50. No problem. He, uh, he wanted an, uh, f- four feet square. That was a problem, you know. But who has a dark room that big, right? Anyway, ab- about the time that I ever have any problems in my life, the answer is probably just right behind me. And I turned around and there was the answer to my problem. And it was called the Iris Graphics Printer. And it was a printer that was used for the uh, printing industry, for the one shots that you see if you're standing in a line to go into a cinema and you, you know, next week is coming, you know, and then there's a little picture, you know, those kind of things. Or if you're a uh, car showroom and you want a brochure printed, you go, right? So anyway, the normal way that you would do that is you would have to shut down your printer, you'd have to clean it, you'd have to re-ink it, and you'd have to work on a proof 
for your customer before he sends, okay, I love that, make me two million of those, right? This guy, Al Lucchese from Bedford in, in, in Massachusetts, uh, said, you're doing it all wrong. This is the 80s. You, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to scan your customer's artwork in and tell my printer to, uh, my computer to tell the printer to just print it out. It'll take you, you know, 40 minutes and cost you $100 instead of three days and $7,000 the old way. And so, I, I, you know, I wanted to see this machine that was supposed to be making these great photographs, right? Here's what happened, basically. The first three years of me shooting in, uh, in America, which included, you know, my relationship with Joan and David and Stephen and Woodstock, um, I... I, I a friend of mine was doing a book on Joni. He knew that we lived together. He knew that I'd probably taken some interesting photographs of her. And instead of um, me having the discipline to take out the negatives that had Joni in them, I just gave him my negatives and I never saw them again. Right? But I did have a box of proof sheets. Now, I don't know whether there are any photographers out there, but a proof sheet image is, what, inch and a quarter by an inch and an eighth, whatever it is. Very small. Twenty of them on a page, depending on you know, how many in that role of film that you bought. And this friend of mine, David Coons, who worked at Disney, was listening to my story about how pissed off I was about losing all my, my, my images. And he looked at the proof sheets and he said, is there any of these images that you like? And I said, yeah, I love this one at Crosby. He said, fine, can I borrow the proof sheet? <laughs> now I think I'm going to lose the proof sheets, right? Anyway... About a week later, he comes back with a 20 by 30 image of David Crosby that knocked me on my ass. It was beautiful. The blacks, the whites, the composition, it was beautiful. The paper it was printed on. And I said to David Coons, I said, I didn't know you had a dark room this big. He said, it's not a photograph. And I said, well, I beg to differ, but it is because I took it. He said, no, no, no. This is an inkjet print. And I'd never heard that term. This was 80, 88. I'd never heard that term. I said, are you kidding me? A machine made this print? Not a dark room, not a photographer, you know, dodging and weaving and, you know, developing and stuff? He goes, no, it's a machine. I said, come on, you got to show me this machine. So I go down to a, a printing company in Los Angeles. I see this machine. It is, in fact, printing beautiful photographs. Uh, it, it's a, it looks like a washing machine. It has a spinning drum. You attach the paper to it. There's four print heads that spray ink at the page. It turns and turns and turns. And then when it finally stops, your image is ready. So that was the answer to my problem. That enabled me to print the show in Japan. Now, Crosby, Stills & Nash were going to play in Australia, and Mac Holbert, who is my dear friend who started Nash Editions with me, um, said, you know, we bought this machine. It was $124,000 for this printing machine. And we voided the warranty within the first 10 minutes. We, we had such a vision for this machine. We knew that this could change the world. Uh, and so I started Nash Editions in 1989. We opened our doors in 1990. And my very first printer that I ever uh, printed on is now uh, living in the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. Thank you. Let's, hey, let's have our next question for Graham Nash. Um, thanks, for, uh, thanks for taking my 
uh, question. As most people here in this room, I grew up with CSN in our house. My mom and dad actually had the luck to see you guys at Woodstock. And 16 years later, I had the luck to see you guys at Live Aid. So, which was kind of cool. So, I was wondering if you had any great stories or memories about Live Aid, and if you would like to share those. I think that any time that you can get hundreds of millions of people to all be on the same page at the same time, it's a good thing. When Live Aid went down, there were obviously concerts in London and in Philadelphia. There was a great camaraderie about it all. We knew that what... Bob Geldof, you know, uh, wanted to do in terms of feeding the children in Ethiopia was a good thing. Now, I know it's possible to critique it because you can say all that money you gave, it never really got to the people because the warlords took it before. I know all that stuff could have gone on. But the point is that his point was these kids are starving, we have to take care of them. So there was a great feeling of camaraderie. We did the the show in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a great feeling of camaraderie. Especially with the four of us, because we, we, hadn't, we hadn't really sung and played together for, you know, maybe years before that. Uh, but yeah, Live Aid was a, was, a, was a really good event to be a part of. Because we thought we were making a difference in the world, and, and possibly we did. That was, that was the one question that my mom and dad had for me, was how good were you guys? So, <laughs> so it was no Duran Duran, no nothing. They, they just wanted to know about you guys. So. Thank you. But thank you very much. Right. I Say appreciate hello. it. Thank you. Right. Yes, ma'am. Sorry, one second. <laughs> this is an honor, by the way. Um, Songs for Beginners is one of my favorite albums of all time. How old are you? <laughs> I'm 23. <laughs> <laughs> And um, Sleep Song is one of my all-time favorite songs in the whole world. Oh, this is so crazy. Um, Do I love being a musician? <laughs> and I just wanted to know your inspiration behind the song. I'm a loudmouth. <laughs> I, I, I need to speak my mind. It's one of the reasons why I'm so proud to be an American citizen for over 35 years. I want to be a part of this country. I have a different view of this country than you do. I'm not from here. I see it differently than you do. This is an incredibly great country. This was based on principles that should go on for the next 100,000 years. It's being fucked up right now, and we all know why it's being fucked up, you know? But this is a great country. Don't you ever, ever forget how great these people are and how great this country really is. Thank you. We have time for one last question. Thank you for your art. Uh, Speaking of your background and the protest movement and the 60s and with all the trouble we have today with the environment and the government shutting down and the things you just mentioned, I wonder and what your perspective is on where is the anger, where is the people of the public of America, why aren't we rising up as your, as the, some of the uh, folks did in the 60s and 70s? Remember before we were talking about Kim Kardashian and Justin Bieber? Exactly. That's where the majority of people are. They don't care. It's not that they don't care. They have been trained not to care. They have been trained to lie there. They have been trained by the media. 
You can, you can figure out the people that own the world's media on two hands. Do you think that they really want protest songs on their airwaves? Do you really think they want people speaking out about real things on, on the TV? Not at all. They don't want any of that. But let me tell you something. When CSNY did the, uh, the last uh, Living with War tour uh, with Neil, we knew what we had to say, particularly about George Bush. Right? I'd never been on a tour in my life where there were bomb-sniffing dogs. I was never on a tour where there were FBI agents all the time. I had never been on a CSNY tour where people walked out. About 10% of the people, every single night, walked out, especially in the South, when we got to a song called Let's Impeach the President. (laughs) They stood for three hours before that song came on the show, right? But they have a right to, to, to leave. They paid for their ticket. But holy shit, if you go and buy a ticket to a Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young concert, what do you expect? Thank you. I'm afraid we are out of time. We want to have an opportunity for you to get your book signed. So uh, let's give one final thanks to Graham Nash. Thank you. Thank you. Graham Nash, singer-songwriter of the Hollies, Harvey Silver Nash, and author of Wild Tales and Rock and Roll Life. Thanks for coming to the Commonwealth Club. Thank you, Greg. You're very welcome.